Let's go ahead and open uh, with a word of prayer, if we could. Father, we long to worship you, and we long to be found with your people, and we long to um, just know you more. And I just pray that you would fill us with a sense of your presence this morning, in Christ's name. Let's dive in, and we're in a series on prayer. And the first thing I just want to say is when I got married, I had a, a, a man, older man in my life, and he told me this, and he said, Ken... Never read a book on marriage and never read a book on how to raise kids. And he would say it to me like every couple weeks. It was Linda's dad, actually. So uh, he said, never, never read a book on marriage, never read a book on how to raise kids. But, and, and his reason was pretty good. It was because those things are so situational that when you get somebody else's kind of paradigm or grid or something like that, that sometimes it's hard to break out of the things that you shouldn't grab or that your marriage isn't like that, or that your kids aren't like that, you know, and so that's kind of what his reasoning was, so he would tell me, don't read uh, how-to books, so having said that, this morning we're going to talk about how to pray, <laughs> and so here's the five things that I, I'm going to throw out, and we're going to, I decided we're only going to take two of them today, but my wife was doing a small group on prayer, and we, we kind of sat down and talked about it one night, and just wrestled round and round, we said if we were going to kind of package it and say what are the different types or aspects of prayer, what would they be, and so these are just completely ours, and there's five different things we came up with, and it's communing with God, and the big big idea there is just peace and joy, that it's just being with, the word with would be huge, and the second thing is listening to God, and the big big idea there is just submission, and hearing from God and being willing to do it, and the third thing was things that we ask of God, and, and there's always those times where we petition God and we have needs, and, and so it's patience and trust because God does not immediately answer all the things that we ask Him, and, th- and then the next two kind of go together, and it's celebrate or fall upon, and so one is when you're filled up and you've got all this, this rejoicing to let out, and the second one is when you're empty and you need all this to kind of come in and and the big idea there is just strength or power and praise. That that's where we get our strength from when we're filled, when we're filled up or when we're empty. And that's really how we praise God. And the fall upon thing is that's the moments when you bury your head in the in the couch. And so if you want to know what I mean by that, it's just if you've ever cried in prayer or thrown your face in like the the corner of a couch. Have you ever done that? And you start slobbering and and things like that. That's that prayer. Um, but we're going to take the top two this morning. And so if, if you want to open up real fast to Luke, we're going to talk about communing with God and three aspects of that. And then we're going to talk about listening to God and three aspects of that. And the first thing I just want to point to is Jesus. This is the story where Jesus gets taken down to the temple in Jerusalem. And he's taken down there by his parents. And they start traveling back, and they think it's this long caravan of people because they have to travel a long ways, and everybody does it at the same time of the year for the, the Passover, etc., and, and those different kinds of things. So they would always travel in big groups. And so they must have thought that Jesus was just with the relatives, with the aunts or the uncles or the cousins. And so they're walking back, and it takes them like a day or something to find out that Jesus isn't with them. So they go back in Jerusalem, and they find Jesus sitting there, and his answer to them was not like, oh, gee, I'm sorry, mom, dad, um, I won't do it again. You know, that's what they were looking for. You know, you've, you've had us all worried, Jesus. You shouldn't have done this. And, and they're expecting that, I'm sorry, I won't do it again answer. And Jesus gives them this answer, chapter 2, verse 49. 
why were you searching for me? You know, I mean, wouldn't that be the craziest thing if you see some mom in Kmart or Walmart frantically looking for their child, you know, and, and just running all over, and then she finds the child, and the child says, well, why were you looking for me? I mean, it's just such a weird answer to, to the situation, and, and Jesus says this, says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. They just really didn't get the idea because religion for them really in that system was um, so much more go down for the Passover. God is in his temple and we have these set religious days and these set feasts and these set festivals. And we, we do certain things as a community. But when Jesus comes, what begins to happen is um, he has a relationship with God that, that no one else really has to that degree. And when he leaves, he kind of says, now I want to give that to you. I'm leaving. It's better if I leave, Jesus says, because then the Holy Spirit can come and you can have an even greater closeness with God than if I stayed. You know, because then you'd be hunting me down. Where's where Jesus get to? You know, where's he at? I got a question to ask him. And he's saying, if I leave, though, then the Holy Spirit can come. You don't have to go hunting me down. You just pray to God. And you come boldly into his presence. And it's just that intimate relationship. And we see the beginnings of that here in Jesus' life that he just wants to be with the Father. He's got to be with the Father. And that is primary to the point where he'd look at his parents and say, don't you get it? This is where I belong. I belong with God. I belong with my Father. And so he would carry that all through his life and he'd spend time on the hills and he'd spend time alone and he would draw away and he wanted to spend time with God. And there was regularity to it. And so the first thing I'd say here is, that as we're learning to commune with God, there's got to be regularity in our prayer. As we're developing a relationship with God that just kind of permeates our day when we're driving, it's just we're aware of God's presence. We have to build that in. It's a regular thing, but part of how we build that in is by routines and just building it into our life. I remember a mentor of mine by the name of Bert Downs, and Bert is over at Western Seminary now, kind of as the president, but he was directing the... The, the Christian camp that I worked at. And I remember going to him and we were like pulling those long days in, in summer camp. Like you get up at five in the morning and you don't go to bed till like midnight and you're just dying and you're running all day long. And, and I'm like, Bert, I don't get it. How you, you know, I was praying so well before I got to camp and now I can't pray at all and, and I don't get it. And Bert says, well, you have to learn, Ken, as you're like growing older that you have to build it in and structure it in. That life doesn't just give you these wonderful opportunities to pray as you get busier and busier. And if you're married and if you have kids and if you're working hard, you know that life just doesn't like all of a sudden have these moments where a red light goes on and it's prayer time. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And so Bert was saying, Ken, you have to build it in. You have to structure it in. And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. And so I set like this little chime on my watch. I used to wear a watch. Now I have a cell phone, but... You know, I used to wear a watch, and I set one of those little, like, hourly dings on it, and that worked, you know. And so every hour it would ding, and I'm like, oh, and so no matter what I was doing, I would stop, and I would pray. And then what happened was about a month later, the thing would ding, I wouldn't even know it. It was just subliminal, you know, subconscious, whatever. And so I was like, it's not working anymore. And so I tied, like, a little string around my finger. And everyone thought I was weird, you know, but now I was praying again. And so... Um, I had this little string around my finger, and I was building it into my life, trying to figure out ways to do that. And then I would—I uh, found this little harmonica that this old guy that lived next to us in Maine gave me. 
and it was this old crusty harmonica. And so then what I started doing was, well, every time I read, I'm going to, when I'm done reading, pray, uh, play this harmonica. And, and I just would like play it and I'd make stuff up on it. And it was like worship for me and prayer at the same time. It was crazy. And nobody's ever heard me play a harmonica. So that's one of those failed <laughs> prayer gimmicks, you know, that didn't really work. And so I would build it in and I, I took that advice and I tried hard to just find ways and, and appointments and meetings and friends to just structure it into my life because that structure would become routine and then it would become habit and then it would just become a natural part in my life. And I think we have to have regularity. We want to get to that natural part of our life kind of regularity. And we do that by building in little things that help us along the way. And so a lot of you are, are sitting here this morning. You're like, man, I'd love to just know that God is there and to have that be so much more a part of my life. And you just got to find some really weird little things to start doing. You know, set, set a little funny ring on your phone. And when it rings, you, you say a prayer or you at least acknowledge that, you know what, God's here. And you do that. And, and Ambrose, old, one of the church, old, old church fathers said this, and I love it. He says, how can there be instruction without exercise or progress without practice? How can there be instruction without exercise or progress without practice? And we have to have regularity to prayer. And if we're going to have regularity to prayer, we've got to practice prayer. We've got to do it. And I think the, the biggest hindrance sometimes is the model of prayer that we've kind of grown up with or gotten accustomed to. And so I think the best thing I ever did in my life was I took a prayer fast. I, like, I, I just set aside a couple months where I wasn't going to pray in any of the natural ways that we always pray. So I avoided all like prayer meetings. And when the staff at my church would pray, I would leave. And the senior pastor really got, you know, he hated it. And so we'd have these arguments. And I'm like, no, man, it's all, it's all good, you know. I'm not going to pray with you guys, you know, and, and I just avoided like all kinds of prayer. I didn't pray before meals because that was just this routine and I was doing it more for, oh, I better pray before a meal because someone in this restaurant's going to look over and they're going to know I'm a Christian and they're not going to see me bow my head. And so I, I better pray so that that person that might see me can see me. And then I read Jesus say, don't pray so that others can see you. And I started thinking, well, wait a second. Maybe I've got it all wrong. So I stopped praying like in front of the meals and I had to find new ways to pray with God and to talk to God. And that new kind of life and that that creativity and the innovation in my own life and in my own walk with God brought things in that I was able to now lean on and became meaningful. And, And so part of this whole building in the regularity for some of you might be stopping to do what you've always done so that you're forced to create some new opportunities. The second thing is this, the closeness of God. When we're talking about communing with God, we have to understand the closeness of God. And there's two different words that get used, and there's transcendent, which means God's far and God's away, and he's out there. And you know, we kind of grab hold of that, and all religions kind of grab hold of that. And so if you go to Tibet, and they have those prayer wheels, and the idea is, the wind will come sweeping down the mountains and spin that prayer wheel where the prayers are written, the cards, and, and those will somehow get thrown into the atmosphere to the God that's out there. And we, when we think of God as being out there and far away, we think of fear and we think of kind of just the heaviness of it. And, 
And there's a different word for a different side of God, and that's, that's eminence, that he's here, that he's close. He's also far and away and out there, but he's also close to us. What I was talking about with Jesus and his relationship with God. And we have to understand that. And here's a part of where we get wrong when we don't understand the closeness of God. It's been said that church used to be this, that when you came to Christianity or you came to church, that it was behave first, belong second, and believe last. And so you'd come into church and people would be sizing you up. Do you smoke? Are you wearing the right kind of clothes? What kind of TV are you watching? Going to Radar Movies? You know? Did you have a drink last night with dinner? <laughs> and it was all about the behavior right at the front door. And then if you behave right, maybe then we'll let you belong. You can be a part of the club. You can look like us and you won't be insignificant. And then lastly, we really care about what you believe about God. And so theology kind of becomes a stale kind of a thing. And behavior becomes first. And I think that the, the way we need to twist it is this, that we have to understand that believing comes first. That until we have faith in God, until we trust God, until we're, we're willing to reach out and lean on God, until we know that God is there, until there's some kind of cognitive content about this relationship with God, nothing else will, will go. And so we've got to believe first. And then once we believe in God, then it comes to belonging. We start connecting with other peoples that believe. And then lastly comes behavior. And so this whole idea of sin modification or behavior management, the church is here just trying to manage behavior is kind of what gave it the whole heavy, duty, overbearing, hard, harsh feel to church that I think so many people reacted to. Is, I didn't even believe in God. I didn't even feel loved, and everybody's just judging on me. And so the right idea is, is we could come to God, help people believe, then we accept them, we love them, guess what? Where they're at. And then they're going to help come, come along and grow and the behavior is going to change. They're going to become more Christ-like. And so when we realize the closeness of God, I think we stop putting the emphasis on behavior. When we put the emphasis on, emphasis on behavior, it's all about self. I'm righteous. Why? Because my behavior fits. And that's kind of the Old Testament view of things. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians if you want to turn there. 2 Corinthians, I think we've actually got it on the board here. 2 Corinthians, and I might have typed it wrong. I think it's chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, and this is what it says. Paul writes, even to this day when Moses is read, when the Old Testament law is read to the people of God, a veil covers their hearts. We read the law, we read the the commandments, and there's a fog and there's a veil and it covers people's hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, they believe, okay, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into the likeness, into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what comes first? The veil is taken away so that we can really get a good look at who Christ is, what God is doing uh, in and through the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. And we look at that, not at ourselves. And that, 
beholding the glory of Christ, that starts to change us and we become more like him. We don't stare at ourselves and say, well, man, I don't, I don't quite have all my habits and my routines dialed. I'm not quite perfect yet. Let me just work more on myself to become better. That's, that's the wrong view. And when we have that view, we kind of put it on other people. I'm working hard and I'm miserable, so they need to be miserable too. And they need to work a whole lot harder on their behavior and, and then they can measure up to me. This, and I'm miserable and I need company. Okay, and we've got to get it in our minds that when God is close and when the veil is taken away and it's no longer about the Old Testament where God is far and we have to like live perfect lives, but God is close and there's freedom and he loves us and we believe that and then we belong and then we see the glory of Christ. And as we're watching that, we've become transformed that that's kind of how this whole thing gets going. That's the big picture. You want to grow spiritually? Don't look at yourself. Get your eyes off of yourself if you want to get the process going. I think one of the funniest things about the Christian world is this. I had a, a buddy once that went to a hotel, and he checked into this huge hotel in this big city, and they were having a pink flamingo conference at this big hotel in a big city, and they're having a pink flamingo conference. You guys know what a conference is? You ever, you ever been to a conference? I mean, a conference is where you get there on Friday, you check in, Right? You get your registration pack with the pink flamingos on it. You go to the first meeting where they talk about pink flamingos. You go to bed, you wake up in the morning, and you have breakout sessions or whatever on pink flamingos. And, and, and my buddy's there, and he's just like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I never knew that there was a subculture in America on pink flamingos. I, I mean, did you guys know that? Kip's got a T-shirt for you if you do. He'll, he'll throw it to the guy five people over accidentally. The, uh, here's the idea. It's irrelevant to us, isn't it? A pink flamingo. I mean, that's irrelevant to us. It's a little subculture in a little bubble, and they have their own little pink flamingo stickers and yard stuff and everything else, and probably language and pink flamingo jokes and everything else, and, and it's irrelevant to us. And I think when we begin to stare at ourselves and it becomes all about behavior and we're like looking at other people, do you belong with us because your behavior matches? And we start like drawing all these distinctions and that's where our our minds are absorbed that we begin to become this little Christian subculture with our own radio station and our own books and our own bookstores and our own inside jokes, and our own lingo of how we talk. And we, we become this little bubble where we're all like focusing on all this stuff, and we get so kind of like pulled into the center that nobody has any idea what the heck's going on with us. And we're irrelevant to them. We're, we're pink flamingo people. It should be kind of funny. Maybe we should get a club like the pink flamingo club on that Oikos software. (laughs) Anyways, if we understand that it's about believing first and the veil's taken away and and it's no longer the law that that should be in my mind, it's no longer being perfect with the law, it's, wow, Christ did it all. God paid it all through Christ. 
And there's others that God is reaching out to. And he's, he's working in other people's lives, not just my own. And, and I can come together with them. And, and then we get to, to look and behold what's going on. And we get to see this whole grand thing. And it's, it's our eyes off of ourselves, And we become transformed. And that's, that's the pattern. And I think when we commune with God, when we spend time with the Spirit, when we understand that God is close, we get out of those weird things where, where it's all about eyes on us. When God's far, it's God of the Old Testament, we think eyes on us. Everything goes wrong, and, and then we've, it's pink flamingo time. Third thing is this, the fellowship of the Spirit. And I think it flows out of this. When we understand the closeness of God, then what we really want is the fellowship with God, the fellowship of the Spirit. And just real quickly, this is just solitude. I want to do an adult spiritual formation program that a couple of us are working on, kind of doing, and it's going to have no real teaching, None, no book teaching, no whiteboards, no anything like that. The whole idea is, is sign up, we're going to grab you, and we're going to help you learn how to go out to Benham Falls or to go sit in a coffee shop for hours and not be ADD with God. That, that you can sit there for hours and, and pray because we're all, we all get stir-crazy, don't we? We haven't developed the capacity to just spend time with God. And so it's just a solitude thing. And I think sometimes we mistake God being silent for God being not present. And I think a lot of times when we pray and a lot of times when we seek out God, we don't hear something right away and, and we think, well, God just isn't there. And that's not the case. God is always there. We're just not hearing him. He's being silent. And so we have to be aware that God is present. He's present when we go to the movies. He's present when we're hanging out with friends. He's present when we're driving in the car. God is always there. He's omnipresent. And even when he's silent, he's still there. His presence is still there. I learned a little bit about this whole idea of sometimes mistakenly thinking things are gone when they're actually still there. (laughs) Last winter, um, on a Sunday, I parked my car out in front of the Regal. (laughs) It's not funny. Um, I parked my car out in front of the Regal, and, and then I hopped in with Tamara, and I left, okay? And then I, we didn't get back to get my car that day, so the next night we went back. It's been like a whole day, overnight, you know, at, at the Regal in Bend, Oregon. Don't do that, you know? It's going gonna, it's gonna to get stolen. There's people from, well, I won't say that. Uh, so anyways, my car got stolen. So we went back the next night and we drive around twice real slowly. And it's like, my car was right there and now it's gone. And I'm like, I can't believe this. It happened right before we got married. Our car was stolen, you know, and it's such a weird experience when your car is not there. And so we drove around twice and, it's, and the car was stolen. And it's not there. And I was so mad at God. And then we drive home and I call the police. I'm like, you know, did you tow my car? I'm like, no, we have no, I'm like, man. And, and I'm like, my car got stolen. They're like, okay, we'll send out a squad car to your house. They're going to take a report. So this is winter. It's freezing cold. They come out. It's Monday nights. That's when we did our small group. And so they come out, and our, our, the guys in our small group are kind of watching Monday night football. These two police officers come in, and one guy's just hanging out with everybody, sitting on my couch with his big puffy jacket, Ben Police, watching football and, like, eating the food, you know, and... The other guy's at the table, and he's taking a report. It's just hilarious. And I'm thinking, my neighbors are driving by. There's a squad car out front. You know, what's going on? So he takes the whole report, and he's like, you know, it's probably, you know, 
people from surrounding towns will drive into Ben, steal things, drive them back, loot it, you know, and so we're probably going to find it, you know, probably a half hour, an hour away in one of the surrounding towns, and we're sorry, you know, call your insurance company, all this stuff. So they drive away. They, they were like a half hour, and they drive away. We're watching Seinfeld because that's what the small group was, um, but don't tell anyone. Uh, we're watching Seinfeld, and then the cop calls. Uh, the police the policeman calls me back. He says, we've located your vehicle. It's like, sweet, you know, well, where did you locate? I'm thinking it's looted, you know, and they took everything out of it, and it's sitting in, in Redmond or Madras or wherever, you know, and I'm like, well, where'd you guys find it? And, and, he, and he's like, uh, yeah, we found it. It's 50 feet kind of from the entrance to the Regal. Um, he goes, I don't know, um, but I'm assuming that's where you parked it. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm just like, I'm thinking in my mind, um, how do I, how do I keep this from my friends that are in my house? How do I avoid telling them? How do I twist the story? And then he says, the, the last thing he says before he gets off the phone, like, just hurt, you know? And he says, hey, I think you can call the Calvary off, you know? And I was like, ooh. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll call. So I come back in, and I didn't say anything for a while, and, and they found out I finally said something. And Kim still thinks it's funny. Sometimes we don't think things are there, but they really are. That's really where I'm going with that. And... And I think, I think it's the way it is with God. I think we can be so just set on the fact that God is gone and he's not. And I think sometimes we need other people to show us that he's still there. Maybe we just need to remind ourselves. Maybe we need to, to search a little harder. Um, but God is there. And if we really want fellowship with the spirit, we're going to get it. The best illustration to me of why God would want us to commune with him this way is we were at family camp three years ago, and Esther was just a little, barely walking or just crawling or whatever. And we're sitting on this log, and they're doing those campfire songs. And Esther's sitting next to me, and she leans in and puts her head on me, you know? And I put my arm around her. And it's like, I don't, I don't remember a single song that we sang. I have, no, I have no idea what song we sang that night. But that moment, you know, have you ever had those moments with your kids? And it, it, she didn't know how to really talk or anything. She just leaned in on me, and that's where she wanted to be, and that's all I cared about. I think God's just wanting us to lean in. Just anyway, break your habits. Do a prayer. I don't care. We just got to somehow find a way to lean in. Second thing is this. We were talking about listening for God. And the big idea is submission. We need to listen to God. Turn to Matthew. We talked about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew last week, but I want to give you the paragraph above it where Jesus talks a little bit about prayer. And so Matthew in chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Jesus is, kind of just throws out a whole bunch of little tidbits. But kind of listen to what he's saying here. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, and on the street corners to be seen by men. Prayer is all, it's all about religion, not about relationship. It's all about them and about status and everything else. And Jesus is saying, I have nothing to do with that. I have nothing to do with that. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. That means God's going to give them nothing. 
The only thing they got from that prayer isn't an answer. Isn't God blessing them? All they got was maybe a little bit of status. They've got their reward in full. God's going to give them nothing else. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, get this, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And what Jesus is saying is kind of the pagan gods of that day are so far off and so distant and they're so not concerned with us that you kind of have to beat down the door with a battering ram. And so they would mantras and and other things like that and they would just over and over and over again kind of offer these prayers. and, And Jesus is like, you don't need to do that. God knows you, God loves you, God cares. You tell him what you need, he already knows it. And then he'll work with you. So here's the first kind of principle. First one is this, God has some good ideas. Okay, it's an understatement, I don't know how, to, how I'll say it. God has some good ideas. Have you ever met a person that didn't have an opinion about everything? Every one of you has an opinion about everything. Now some of them aren't all that important to you, but you have an opinion about anything. If, if, it's, if it makes sound, if it tastes, if you can see it, any one of your five senses, if I put it in front of you, you're going to form an opinion. I like it. I don't like it. Well, it's not as good as that one. Well, it kind of reminds me of something else. You know, I don't get what Susie's thinking. This is really... St- you have an opinion about everything. You look at what people wear. You either like it or you don't, or you think it's silly or you don't. But we have opinions about everything. Guess what? So does God. God has opinions about everything. I think some of them are probably a heck of a lot stronger than others, just like us. But if we go to God and ask for advice, he's never going to say, gee, I'm I'm at a loss. I I really don't know what I think about that. (laughs) God has ideas and God has opinions and they're probably not all that bad. And, and so we need to learn to listen. It's a lot of times this is kind of what prayer is like, I think. This, this little guy is just not listening. You know, he's got it in his head that it's about pushing and um, school for the gifted, huh? I think there's a lot of things God has to say to us that will help make life a heck of a lot easier if we would listen. And we, we push and we push and we push and we pray prayers like the pagans do and, and it's petition and it's petition and it's petition and sometimes we back up and we get in secret and we pray and we're reminded God already knows what we need. He already has some ideas. He already has some thoughts. And maybe we should stop and listen. So the first thing is just that. God has some good ideas. One last thought on that. It, Religion became, all throughout the Middle Ages, there's a Latin phrase, um, ex opere operata. I don't even know how to spell it. But the whole idea was that by the virtue of doing something, it's effective. The action makes it effective. And so the sacraments became something where by taking Mass, it was a means of grace. God dispensed grace into your life. Just by virtue of taking it, nothing else mattered. Just by virtue of 
of doing the rosary, just by virtue of doing different kinds of things, just the action, the religious duty, the action, meant that God was going to bestow grace on you. And what happened through hundreds of years was, what did we start to do? We started to put God on the other end of a contract, and he was no longer a person. He was an entity that was duty-bound to give us certain things. Does that make sense? And so we stopped thinking of God and what God thought and everything else, and we would just go to religion and to prayer and to different kinds of stuff and just do it. And then God owed something to us. And I think that a lot of times we were like that. We'd rather make a cross. We'd rather throw out a silly prayer. We'd rather go through an action or attend a meeting than really listen. Because that's a heck of a lot easier because it's up to us. If God's on the other end of a contract and I can just hit his button, he's like a, a flight attendant. You know, I can just hit the God button anytime I want. And it's all up to me and I can control it. And God has some pretty good ideas and it's not about me hitting the button. It's about me sitting and being a little bit quiet and maybe listening. When we started this church, I made a vow. I don't make too many rash vows. Every once in a while I do. This was a rash one. <laughs> I vowed like nine months before we planted the church. I was like, I'm going to pray an hour a day until the church launches. And I kept that vow. And my, my, my better friends, Tamara, I'll tell you, my better friends don't even know that I kept that vow. We'd be driving on long trips and, and I'd have the kids take a nap so I could pray the whole way. Or I'd stay up extra late and drag in with bags under my eyes and things like that. But I, I realized that an hour was a lot longer than I thought it was. <laughs> That's why it was a rash vow. And here's what I learned about a week into that vow of praying. Was that you, you get prayed out in about five minutes. You go through your lists, you're done in about five minutes. And so if you're going to sit and continue to pray, it's, it's pretty much from that point on all about listening. And, and maybe in your mind, just putting things before God and saying, God, what do you think? Can you weigh in on this? You know, is there some things I'm not seeing? Help lead me where you want me to, to go. And, and you realize that, man, if you're going to spend a lot of time with God, the bulk of it's going to become listening. Because our lists, we exhaust them quick. And so God has ideas, and, and we need to go, and we need to listen. The second thing is this. We need to have willing hearts. Wow. Okay, we're, we're going to just power through this one and then we're going to be done okay but i'm going to use moses as an example for this we need to have willing hearts the, the next one that we won't get to is we also have to have open ears remember how jesus kept saying they, they don't have the ears to hear or the eyes to see remember that whole deal we have to sometimes be willing to see things that, that maybe aren't easy for us to see you know maybe potentially be wrong and change have you ever heard that uh that one-liner um, as I've grown older, my opinions have changed, but the fact that I'm right remains the same. <laughs> you know, I think the hardest thing is for us just to be wrong, but I think we can have ears to hear if we're just willing to be wrong. And so write that one down. Maybe we'll save it for a different time. But here's the thing. We need to have willing hearts. And, a, and the posture of a willing heart is like, okay, here's my hands, God, take my life and use it. And I think we all get an inkling of what God created us for, but it starts out really self-centered and driven this way. And so Moses is the example. He knew that he was made to rescue his people. 
And so the first chance he gets, he pops off with his temper. He kills a guy, and he kind of blows his chances. He no longer has credibility. He runs away, has to hide, and he, he lives in seclusion the bulk of his life, not like a week or day or month. I mean, he goes, and he's just out of the game, period, for like the bulk of his life. And so he's like way too engaged in what I would call that willful. He's willful on this end, way too heavy, way too much Moses going on. So God comes and talks to him, and God says, okay, Moses, it's time. I'm going to bring you back to Egypt. You're going to lead my people out of Egypt, and you're going to set them free, and, and it's time. And Moses is standing there, and he's, like, got sheep, and it's the middle of the day, and, and bushes are burning, and, you know, and he's just like, so what, whatever. I, no, I'm not the guy. And he's will-less. So over here, he's willful. Over here, he's will-less. I can't do anything. I can't. Over here, it's like I can do way too much. It's all me, Moses. Go, Moses. And over here, it's like I'm nobody, and I can't do anything. And why even bother? And he's will-less. And God keeps working with him and talking with him. And he says, no, 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 no. you got to understand. I didn't want you to do it back then when it was all Moses. And I'm not going to just let you quit on me now. He goes, it's about me working through you. And so I need you to be willing not willful, not will-less, but I need you to be willing just to be used by me. And I think a lot of the things we start out with, it's like over here and it's off the charts. And then we pendulum sling, uh, swing and we're like, oh, woe is me. And we do the whole martyr complex. I was doing that yesterday, like at the golf tournament. You know, it's kind of fun if you've never tried it. Just, just kind of have a whole lot of self-pity going on. Um, and it feels good for a little while until people start looking at you like you're weird, you know, and and then you feel embarrassed, and then you're depressed, which is a different thing. But the martyr complex, okay? It's like, oh, I can't do anything. Oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm so tired. Oh, life is so hard. You know, and it's like, you know, will less. And God says, no, you need to have a willing heart. If you're going to listen to me, one of the things I'm going to tell you, if not the dominant thing that I'm going to tell you in your life, is how I want to use you. I made you for a reason, and you've had that little inkling for a long time, and it's never gone away because the Holy Spirit never argues with you, but he also never runs away. So when, when your conscience speaks, have you ever gone, well, but, but what about this? Okay, well, I told God, you know, he doesn't have a comeback for that. Sweet. And then we go, and the Holy Spirit's like, wait a second, this wasn't a discussion. And until you, maybe 10 years from now, come back and realize that that wasn't supposed to be a discussion when I said, go write that book, or go live in Africa, or give away your possessions, or sell your car, or befriend that guy that no one wants to befriend because he's awkward, that when I told you that, that wasn't a discussion. You were going to say yes or no, and when you think you made a discussion, that was actually you saying no. So now I'm going to wait right here, and I'm going to follow you around, and when you're ready to talk again, and you might be 60, I'll talk again. And it's still going to be the same thing. Do this. And the answer is yes, I'm willing to do that, God. And so Moses' whole deal, God speaking to him and him hearing was, I made you for a reason, now go do it. Now, the thing God makes us for is usually the thing that drives us crazy. It's why Moses killed that guy. He had a divine discontent. And God planted that in there so that he would be able to have a passion about freeing his people. And it's like, a, it's like a grain of sand with a pearl, uh, like an oyster. You get this thing in there and it chafes it, right? And it's bugging it. And what does it turn into over time? It turns into this incredibly valuable thing, you know, this little pearl, little grain of sand that's chafing on it. 
and, and it becomes something. And God has put a grain of sand in your life, a little divine discontent. And it's going to sit there and it's going to chafe at you. And then God's going to take and turn that into your calling or your ministry. And he's going to turn it into something beautiful. There you go. It's a fake. Um, the, uh, the idea is that the idea is that we got to listen. And that we just don't throw all our stuff at God. And this isn't easy. I think we're all in process on this. I know I am. But we have to come back to a point where we realize that the answer is yes to whatever God says. It's not time for debate. We don't get to brainstorm with God. Um, we just get to say yes. And when we do, and when we listen, and when we hear and we act on that, it's amazing how smart God is. It's amazing that he already knows what we needed and what we already wanted, and, and he's going to lead us there. And I think sometimes God makes that barrier where we're about to trust him so ridiculously difficult because he wants us to do it in faith. You know, it's like those guys that are missionaries that get to go to Hawaii, you know. I mean, it's like if, if they know about Hawaii before they make the decision, man, their motives are all messed up. But if they're like, oh, I got to give my life to God, I don't know about this. And then they give their life to God and all of a sudden they end up in Hawaii. It's like, well, that's our God. You know, we're afraid because we can't see that God is good. But when we trust him and we walk out on that limb, then God proves to us that he's good. And he uses a lot of the pain, a lot of the trials in our life to bring about good things. And I've heard it said that you have to break eggs to make an omelet. And, and one of the things that we're pounding on God's door about are the painful situations in our life and the difficult trials. And we're pounding on the door because things are broken. And that's hurting. And that, that hurt is real. And, and it is. And God cares. But it might be 10 years before we see what comes about from that brokenness in our life. That God's doing something. And it might take a long time. It might take other pain in our life before we finally see how it weaves into something and God's going to get us where he wants us to be and where he's going to use us and where we can, in some sense, be involved in his plan for, for reaching people because God cares about people. So we've got to listen, even if there's confusion, even if we doubt that God is there sometimes, we have to sit, we have to listen, and we have to believe. And so may we pursue our God and may we desire fellowship with our God. And may we learn that what God says is real. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will, ser- you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Amen.